0: How does the climate crisis figure in our national politics? Climate One features energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Fiery young people and historic wildfires have propelled climate disruption onto the agenda during this presidential election. Later in the show, we'll hear from Varshney Prakash, leader of the Sunrise Movement that has effectively moved Joe Biden and other Democrats toward bolder climate action in line with the science. Republicans, for their part, are still denying or downplaying the threat, as evidenced by Amy Coney Barrett's comment during her confirmation hearing that climate change is controversial. Not long ago, Democrats and Republicans basically agreed on climate change. Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger put California at the head of the charge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Senator John McCain crossed the aisle to co-sponsor three versions of the Climate Stewardship Act, none of which made it through the Senate. Since then, climate change has become a partisan issue, despite the fact that its effects touch the lives, jobs, and communities of every American. Political strategist Steve Schmidt believes that agreeing on a solution means first meeting people where they are.
1: The climate advocates... Really need to think very hard about how do you communicate to working class people in this country, people who work with their hands, who build things, work in manufacturing sectors that are under strain and stress about what a picture of a future looks like, that they can be full participants in an economy that's in transition, both from a technological perspective and from an environmental perspective.
0: Schmidt worked on the presidential campaigns of George W. Bush and John McCain and Arnold Schwarzenegger's surprise run for governor. He's one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, a group of lifelong Republican strategists working to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism. Schwarzenegger's belief that what's good for the environment is also good for the economy led him to sign the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. Schmidt explains how that bipartisan climate deal came about.
1: Well, it remains, I think, the singularly most significant climate change legislation that's been passed in the country. Arnold Schwarzenegger had a view, he had a conviction. It was really a time, an example, and there's not been a lot of them um, this century of elected officials working together. You had a Republican governor who had a very close working relationship with the Democratic Speaker of the House, Fabio Nunez. And Fabio Nunez had a point of view, which is, you know, my job is to move the state of California forward. My job is to craft legislation. My job is to get the best deal possible, not to obstruct wholly a Republican governor. So he went in there and he said no to the governor on a number of different issues, but he also had a point of view. Hey, I'll work with you on this, and the two of them found their way to working with each other and passed that historic legislation, which. You know, is not a perfect piece of legislation, but, you know, certainly the apocalyptic um, predictions about what it would do to the California economy have not have not come to pass. But, um, you know, the reality is, is that it's a global problem and California can be a leader, but California, as big as it is and as powerful it is, still can't be the solution you know, to a planetary problem.
0: A couple of years later, you advised John McCain on his presidential run. Uh, George Bush, President Bush, had pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Protocol, but McCain took climate seriously and co-sponsored a climate bill with Senator Joe Lieberman. Um, How did McCain see the climate and how did his understanding of climate evolve over time?
1: Well, John McCain wasn't a scientist, but he believed in science and believed in scientists. And he would certainly have been and was at the time in disagreement with people that were in denial over a growing consensus around around this issue. And, um, you know, John McCain represents a vestigial Republican Party that wasn't an anti-science party, you know, by 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 any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, I do think that, one of the one of the aspects if we want to move climate change forward as an issue is that the the two sides are going to have to learn to speak american to each other and i i don't so for sure the the question of the science on this is indisputable and anecdotally um, anybody who's over thirty five forty years old, wherever you are in the country, the weather is materially different and i've I've lived in California for a long time I've lived out west now for a long time. I grew up on the east Coast. Uh, you look at the severity of storms, hurricanes, everything. Um, what the scientists have said would happen over the last forty years is in fact happening i mean that's just just indisputable now now there's a question: What do you do about it? And And the question is, and I think it's a fair one to ask, and some Republicans ask this question um, that believe in the science, but say, and I think that people who are advocates for climate change policy have to have the capacity to answer this this question, which is, if you want to impose a trillion dollars worth of regulation on the economy, you're going to have to explain what the efficacy of the policy is. What will it in fact do? To lower global carbon emissions, if it is just a virtue signaling exercise, leadership for other countries at the cost of America's working class families, then I think it becomes a more difficult proposition. I mean, there ha- there has to be sensitivity around the economic dislocation that has brought us in in large measure in part to this moment, broadly speaking, that we're in with dangerous ramifications for our democracy and for even the union of states.
0: There's also the cost of inaction, right? People often point to the cost of action. And we've seen with COVID, uh, a trillion dollars used to be a lot of money. And now, you know, I've lost track of how many trillions that uh, national governments have spent. So there's the COVID context, which shows we can spend big money when we want to and have to. And then there's the cost of inaction.
1: Well, I, look, I, you know i don't know what a limited government party means in an era where the government has the ability to spend 3 trillion dollars in a in a month but you know we should all understand that you know the debt to the gdp ratio is now the highest it's been since world war 2 and eventually even this country will run out of money you know, my my point is is that when you when you talk about big change and you you talk about reconciling Sacrifice and action. You have to talk candidly and clearly. COVID is a great example of, you know, six months of nonsense talk. All of it foundationally built around the president's lie, he delivered to the country 119 times, and as a result, we have 150,000 dead Americans that didn't have to be dead if we had the same mortality rate as the Germans did. Right. So, you know, this is a lethal aspect of all of this as it relates to COVID, but it's deeply related to climate change, the out-of-hand rejection of science. I mean, you saw an exchange between Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci, where Rand Paul has no idea what he's talking about at all, just nonsense talk, and Dr. Fauci dressed him down. But, you know, we have a political party that is deaf to the expertise of what everyone else in the world would recognize as the world's leading infectious disease expert, who just happens to be an American, and so on all all of these issues, um, you know I think that people deserve to have and must have an understanding of the result that will be delivered by the policy, and I think it's an important thing to 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 realize that you know most Americans. When they walk into, and I don't care what political party they're in, when they walk into a local government, a county government, a state government, to the DMV, to the federal government, for whatever, it is an infinitesimally small number of people who walk out of that experience saying, wow, that was terrific. Couldn't be, <laughs> what a great experience. You know, I, let's give them more money and let's give them more power. And so, you know, for Democrats, right, a really important figure In this in this primary election was Andrew Yang. Because Andrew Yang understands something, right? Which is that government is sclerotic, and that what drives cynicism and what obstructs an ability to solve problems is a substantial belief the government's not capable of delivering and executing either the program, the mission, or delivering the service. So there's no group in the country, right, who should be more invested in the idea of the efficient delivery of government services that build trust in the eyes of the people in government to do so than progressives who have the point of view that government should be doing more across a wide spectrum of things, including climate. And the bigger the aspiration and ambition to fix big problems, the greater the gap is between the credibility of government's claims, you know, to, hey, we got to do something. But you know, people look at it and say, "Do what and how and how's it going to work?"
0: There's been a, and I think you touched on something that's been a narrative since Reagan. You know, said, uh, "You know, government is not the solution; government is the problem." Bill Clinton said, "The era of big government's over." Grover Christ wants to, you know, drown it in a bathtub. The narrative that government is ineffective and stupid has been quite dominant in the last since since Reagan. But you know, there's a U.S. military, which is a government agency, and there's a been. I guess I push back on that, that government also gets a lot of the hardest problems that markets don't solve very well. We ask government to solve homelessness. We ask government to solve a lot of things where markets don't work so well. Um, so I just want to you know, say that push back against that narrative that government is always bad you, you know yes the dmv is is no one's place. I'm
1: not saying I'm not saying it's bad and you know so the, you have a reflexive defensiveness to this right which i which i think is an important i say this respectfully which is which is this so reagan and that expression which was a political expression right that had resonance at a time where there was a majority of the country that believed that the great society programs that they had been ineffective that government was too much that smaller government more controlled government and the pendulum always swings back and forth in american life on this question i would argue that trumpism is an entirely different matter altogether but but i do think that's unfortunate because i do think that there are problems Right That only government can solve that only government has the has the scale to solve, but but it is like, true. like a pandemic right right we need but, to- well, but government hasn't solved the problem, the pandemic, our government has had the least effective response of any industrialized country in the in the world, and so what I'm saying is that when you look at government. I have no argument with that whatsoever, that he's the most incompetent administration. But up and down, you can look at Flint. You can look at the L.A. school system. We can look at lots of places in America where Republicans have no influence at all. And by no influence, I mean 0.0. And you see chaos in the schools. You see chaos across the board look at the local administration of the city of San Francisco right now on quality of life issues or in Los Angeles. So what I'm saying is that people, regardless, right, regardless of where they are, right, on the political spectrum, 85 to 90 percent of people in this country agree with each other on the question of basically what do we do to solve the immigration problem? What do we do to Past the first steps of common sense gun control. The brokenness of our politics is that we have 90% agreement on a dozen different solutions that we cannot get through the state or federal legislative processes because of the systemic brokenness of politics. And, And all I'm saying is that in order to get to the big type of solutions that you need on the biggest problems, there has to be some level of restoration of trust between the citizenry and the government, and it's not just distrust of the Trump administration, though it's spectacularly incompetent, it's broad distrust across the board over many years about the capacity of government to deliver services. And so the updating, the modernization, I don't think that there's bad people in the DMV. I don't think they have the technology, for example, that a private sector company does that's operating on a Salesforce platform. There needs to be top to mo- bottom modernization you know, of all of this. There needs to be a strategy. And, and what I'm saying is the articulation of a strategy that can answer the question about how does this make life better for the people 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. That should be something, if you care about climate change, that is a first order strategic priority with regard to communicating to the country about what the crisis is, how much time we have, and what must be done to solve it in a way that grows the coalition, that doesn't keep it static, that doesn't keep the problem intractable, because it's not a good thing that there's been no forward progress on this legislatively since 2006 anywhere else in the country, not to mention the country's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords.
0: Right. Well, I think one of the questions problems is we don't want to pay for the DMV. We don't want to pay the taxes that could uh, allow the DMV to buy a Salesforce platform or to invest in the infrastructure because we want to see what's the return for me. What am I going to get out of this? What's going to be direct personal return? And in climate, that's really hard to calculate. You know, what is the cost of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions so Florida doesn't get hammered with hurricane after hurricane so the American West doesn't burn uh, like a fireball several months a year? So if we if we're only thinking about that direct payback, I don't think we get there.
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I do think again, right? Like on the efficiency, you know, in the state of California, you know, if you if you have someone right who's in the top bracket, let's say, you know, someone who makes over a million dollars a year, it's a lot of money, right? But they're paying fifty three percent right of their salary between the federal and state all in, right? I, I'm not sure, right? You know, at that income, at lower incomes. A couple hundred thousand dollars a year in household income in, you know, suburban Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, you're not living the lifestyles of the of the rich and famous. And so, you know, I think it's easy to say more money, more money, more money, you know, for everything else. But what I'm saying, a lot of the solutions to increased efficiency in the end contain costs, don't cost more. We have we have tremendous inefficiency. You know, every everywhere we look, you know, and I'm just saying this analytically that, you know, if you're in the climate advocacy side, right, and, you, and you're trying to communicate that we have a major problem, and we do, right? When you look at when you look at the fires, right, in the in the West, and the size and the and the scale of them, right, the ferocity of the of the hurricanes, I think you have to be introspective, if you're on that side. And to say, why isn't this coalition growing consistent with the increasing obvious severity of the problem? And so it's one thing to, you know, I think step back and tell people they're wrong or, you know, that they're not doing this or that or whatever. But this issue is going to require, I think, some introspection. Forget the Republican politicians in the Senate, they're in the House, they're a lost cause. They're a lost cause. Right by the time they get there, every one of these people is anti science, you know with few exceptions right they're they're beholden to an ex- increasingly extreme base. National Republican party is going to look more like the state of california republican party right and so the the place you have to convince people is at the people level, right, which is below the political class level, you know to demand take action and make this an electoral issue.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest is political strategist Steve Schmidt, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also is a former vice chairman of Edelman, a public relations firm with close ties to Chevron. In fact, a former Chevron executive, Dave Sampson, is now a vice chair of Edelman. Fossil fuel companies have spent millions on disinformation campaigns designed to confuse the public about their part in the climate crisis. And they wield enormous influence in the political realm through campaign financing. Is there a way to unlock that power?
1: I think that as a political matter, the side that denies climate change is on the defensive. The side that the climate change side is on the defensive about is the what we're going to do about it side, right, in a way that leads to buy-in from the American people, that it's not going to break me economically. You know, it's not going to shutter my business. I'll give you a great issue, right? That's, um, you know, in the state of California, these bans on single-use plastic bags. Now, the climate argument is a serious argument all the time or none of the time, in my view. And the and the reality on that product was you banned a product that was American-made, that was made from a natural gas platform and decided instead to import as a solution these heavier gauge bags from China, which are made from petroleum bases, and not to mention the tens of thousands of people who worked in manufacturing facilities in the state making a living wage, who now all of a sudden are looking at the political class of the state saying, well, the plastic bag here is a mortal threat." And we're going to eliminate tens of thousands of, of jobs on a bunch of junk science. Litter's a problem, but you can recycle all of this stuff. And so that working class voter who sees a regulatory regime on a on a wide range of fronts defaults to being very unsympathetic to the same people who are trying to get rid of their job who are also telling them about the exigent emergency circumstance of climate change. And so I think the climate advocates really need to think very hard about how do you communicate to working class people in this country, people who work with their hands, who build things, work in manufacturing sectors that are under strain and stress about what a picture of a future looks like, that they can be full participants in an economy that's in transition both from a technological perspective and from an environmental perspective, that they're not going to be left out of the ability to climb because we're in this giant mess in this country because at the end of the day, 40% of people have $400 cash savings and have completely lost faith in expertise and science, the American dream, and have taken on a nihilistic approach to, to politics. And what animates them is animus towards the other tribe, and that's where we are. And so you know my my point here is that this Supreme Court fight is a great example of the type of majoritarianism that the founders warned the country about in Federalist ten. We're deeply worried about this, right the The inability for the faction to suppress the debate around the obvious public good. And climate change fits into that. But, you know, I think that if you're an advocate of climate change, you have to think about how to deliver this message, because it's an urgent one, to people who have been propagandized, people who have been lied to, people who have been spun a line of BS for 25 years on a collection of very dishonest platforms. And it's an enormous strategic task, but there is introspection called for. On the question of how can we do this better on the climate change side of it.
0: And back to your former boss, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was better than anyone in sort of making, debunking this idea that the economy and the environment are always at odds. Uh, he was very persuasive in saying, look, these things can go together. Look at California since that law he signed, the economy has thrived. Tesla has now change the American, the global auto industry and helping drive down the cost of batteries, solar electricity, some of the cheapest electricity on the planet right now. Markets are working, right? Why aren't Republicans embracing those market innovations and progress, which are a lot of that's American grown?
1: I I think like part of it is understanding. um, I mean, first off, right, Republicans in the state of California don't have any political power at all. Right. They they can't stop anything from happening, right? So if anything, right, is or isn't happening, right? The 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 one group that isn't responsible for good or bad is a group that has no power, right? I mean the the Republican legislative minority has as much influence in California as does the Nevada Republican legislature. It's just, you know, and they've they've put themselves they put themselves in that position. But if you look at it just from A public opinion perspective, you know, California is a nation state. And if you look at the diffusion, let's just take it back to when there was still a healthy Republican Party in the state, or at least it wasn't in super minority status. Two very different states economically, right? You know, Republicans are overrepresented in the Central Valley and in the northern part of the state. And that's a very different economy. You know, from the coastal areas of the state. I mean, you want to talk about income inequality? Drive to Palo Alto, right? Stop, look at the tower, turn around, and drive back thirty-five miles. You know, into the valley. I mean, you have you have Great Depression economies in some of some of these places, and so from an agri- agricultural base, um, drought. The state's water policy is a disaster, and has been you know for for probably most of our lifetimes. Republicans are representing a downscale economically part of the part of the electorate, and both Trump and Hillary Clinton lied when they went to West Virginia to talk to the voters there, so Hillary went there and she said. Listen, coal miners and, and, and all that, the, the clean energy jobs are coming. Clean energy jobs aren't coming to eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. They're not. Trump went there and said all the coal mining jobs are coming back. Well, they're not. They're not, right? But what's easier to believe? Something that never existed or a past that you can still touch? So
0: where and how does energy matter in the presidential and down-ballot races this year?
1: I don't think it does particularly. I think that there's, you know, look, and I'm involved in a group called the Lincoln Project, and, you know, we have a um, point of view in the race, you know, and we we were deeply troubled watching the Democratic primaries in the fall because there was a name not often spoken in them. Thy name is Trump. And, you know, our point of view is the first issue, the second issue, the third issue, and the next 147 after that are all one thing, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the biggest, worst problem the country is facing, and he's the easiest one to fix. Can't fix anything until he's removed from power. And here's the reality. And I I just, I believe this to the bottom of my heart. We're not getting back to energy policy in this country. In fact, we're not getting back to anything until COVID is under control. And I think a lot of Americans look at this and they think, well, God, you know, this has been going on since March. So like, it's got to be halfway over, right? It's <laughs> right. It's, it's not. We're still we're still at the beginning. We're going to we're going to have a we're going to have a death count that exceeds our total World War II casualties, maybe much, much higher. A disaster for the ages, disaster for the ages. The economy is shattered. You know, one one out of every fifteen hundred black people in America is going to die of COVID. It's extraordinary to ponder the racial inequity and the distribution of the mortality of the disease. Um, the impact on small business in this country, the disruption of education. I mean, we've ended the American way of life fundamentally, right? I mean, grand grandparents can't see their grandkids. Grandparents can't see the birth of a grandchild. Football games, tailgates, bar mitzvahs, first communions, graduations, proms, because of Trump. None, none of this had to happen. And so... You know i I climate change is an emergency one need look no further than than California you know but in but in the middle of the pandemic that there could be an emergency that even has primacy over that is just testament to the profound dysfunction, incompetence, malice, malfeasance you know that that we see out of this administration it's just unbelievable.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Steve Schmidt. He's a former campaign strategist for John McCain and George W. Bush and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Disclosure, a member of my family has contributed uh, to the Lincoln Project. Coming back to where we started and getting toward the end here, um, Republicans, there's been talk that they're seeking a new message on climate, that they're worried about losing a generation of, of, of voters who really care about climate. What what is that path? Is there a path for Republicans and Democrats to come together on climate
1: in a Biden administration? You know, what what does that look like? There's a problem. The problem calls for a solution. Solutions that work are based in pragmatism. And, you know, one thing I'll just say, like I'll just I'll just react to, and you know, I've always enjoyed our conversations, you know, when we've when we've talked about climate and You know, I think when you look at people who want to get to the same place, but, you know, have to listen to each other. And when I hear kind of the term fossil fuel companies and just in the state of California, I mean, largest employer in the state is Chevron. I mean, if Chevron were to suddenly disappear and, you know, all of the jobs associated up and down the economic ladder with Chevron, it's devastating for the state not to mention if you actually work for for Chevron. And so the the climate change side of this, I mean, if you if you look at the fossil fuel economy in the in the country, it can't be turned off overnight. You know, there's there's millions of jobs that are you know that are dependent on it and and to be honest with you, you know, I've never it, it it seems to me in the same sense that when people talk about it, and particularly out of California, right, you know, we're at the age of driverless trucks and, you know, cars and all of this stuff. I mean, number one living wage job for a non-college educated white male in America is driving something to somewhere. And, you know, I don't have the answers to that, to that stuff, but, you know, other than from the perspective of what I've done for a living is if the democratic party's position is through the debates and everything else is that fossil fuel economy. And if you, you work in any, you're making, you're making equipment, you're making automobiles, doing, doing whatever say, well, my existence is super, superfluous to them. It's, it's irrelevant. And, and it's like, that's, to, to move forward on this, got to got to be able to bridge people's real anxieties, you know, with the edges and circumstance of how we fix this problem.
0: We've been talking about climate and the political divide with Steve Schmidt, former Republican campaign strategist and a founder of the Lincoln Project. When we come back, the leader of the Sunrise Movement has a warning for Democrats. It's time they step up to the plate.
2: We're done electing and protecting and supporting Democrats just because they have a D next to their name. Just because you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean that you're good on climate. It doesn't mean that you are a champion.
0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. One week after Democrats took back control of the House in the 2018 midterm elections, the youth-led Sunrise Movement occupied the office of Speaker Nancy Pelosi to demand that she take bold action on climate change. Newly elected Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the architects of the Green New Deal, joined them to voice her support. I just
2: want to let you all know how proud I am of each and every single one of you. For putting yourselves and your bodies and and everything on the line to make sure that we save our planet, our generation, and our future, it's so incredibly important.
0: My next guest, Varshney Prakash, co-founded the Sunrise Movement in 2017, just after she graduated college. Prakash has written that she felt the arc of history bend a little when she and the other Sunrisers staged their climate sit-in.
2: In that moment, we knew that if Democrats took back control, they would not prioritize the climate crisis. They would say, well, Trump's in office. We don't have the chance at passing legislation. Let's forget about it for two years until the, the, the districts look different. And I think we realized, like, if we don't get out ahead, that was this, you know, in the same month we had seen the IPCC report that told us we had little less than a decade to transform the U.S. economy towards a renewable energy economy. So during this time, we had over 200 sunrisers um, who marched to Nancy Pelosi's office and held envelopes that said, Dear Democrats, what is your plan? And we delivered these envelopes that contained the stories of what people had loved and lost to the climate crisis or were in fear of losing to climate change. And for two hours afterwards, we demonstrated, we chanted, we sang, Um, We told powerful stories. I remember one story where uh, one of our leaders, Claire, um, talked about how her aunt and uncle had lost their homes in wildfires wildfires, when at the same time the campfire was on the TV screen in Nancy Pelosi's office. And so it was this just electric moment. And was made even more powerful when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came and joined us. And said, you know, collectively we've got to have Nancy Pelosi's back in 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 pursuing the most ambitious energy agenda this country has ever seen. And I'll never forget that moment. And over the course of of the next couple of days, we saw five, like over five thousand articles that were written about climate change and a Green New Deal within like twenty four to forty eight hours. That is like unheard of for climate news. You know, it, we we saw all of a sudden this concept, this term of a Green New Deal becoming a rallying cry, we saw it immediately start to become a litmus test for democratic candidates on the campaign trail to the presidency. And ultimately I think what was achieved in that moment was two things. One, a complete destruction of the debate of is climate change real? Um, And a departure from that and an evolution to a conversation about, we know it's happening. What are the solutions and how big and at what scale do we need to pursue them? And the second thing that happened was a connection between the climate crisis, racial justice and the economy in a very public way. You know, this is stuff that that environmental justice communities, indigenous peoples have been calling for for centuries, literally. But now it was part of the, you know, national mainstream discourse and, you know, has 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 propelled some of the most intersectional and like powerful legislation and policy plans from a lot of different congress people and um presidential candidates that we've seen yet.
0: As someone who follows thinks about climate full time, I certainly sunrise for me came out of nowhere, burst on <laughs> the scene very very dramatically and certainly shifted the debate during the Democratic primary season and got there to be these, those climate town halls. I saw Sunrise very much driving that. And then there was a little bit of a lull and the Democratic establishment said, well, the Green New Deal is not really a plan. It's a rallying cry. Once Joe Biden got the nomination, he appointed this council to try to bring in the Bernie supporters, the, you know, the more uh, aggressive climate people. Um, yeah, tell us about that transformation because Joe Biden's in a very different place now on climate <laughs> than he was six or nine months ago.
2: He is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I I participated alongside uh, folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and environmental justice advocate Catherine Flowers in the Bernie Biden unity task force process. And the primary goal, at least for me, in being on that task force was to see, you know, could we push Joe Biden to increase his ambition to, um, move up the timelines by which we have to decarbonize our economy to center justice and equity in every part of his climate change legislation? And in doing so, could he actually begin to ignite excitement and uh, a sense of inspiration amongst a demographic of people who care deeply about the climate crisis, uh, but have really, really not been supportive of Joe Biden, young people? And, you know, through this task force process, we were able to move up the timeline on decarbonizing the power sector from 2050 to 2035. Um, he made commitments around a net zero new buildings by 2030. Um, he is proposing a $2 trillion green jobs and infrastructure plan and creating 2 million jobs with a, a, a commitment that 40% of that investment will go to frontline communities you know, I could go on and on about many of the things that were uh, additions to that policies as a result, as a result of young people being a part of the process. And I think ultimately, we've come out the other end where now we're witnessing these fires just demolishing, you know, 5 million acres of land in a matter of days and weeks. We're seeing, you know, there are like, I, last time I checked, there were eight storms brewing across the world simultaneously. We've seen the Gulf Coast being hit again and again and again. Iowans have absolutely not recovered following the derecho of a few weeks ago. We are in a climate emergency. And I think that young people are also really realizing and understand the difference between somebody like Donald Trump and somebody like Joe Biden uh, with the The understanding that ultimately Joe Biden, while he may not be everything that we hoped that he would be on climate, he has moved considerably and he has proven that he is amenable to his platform shifting, which I think is extremely important for change agents to keep in mind.
0: One of the, the differences I see that, that Sunrise has brought to the politics is people, politicians on the right had always feared that if they came out on climate, they would face a primary challenge from the right funded by the Kochs and Tea yeah. Parties. And the, on the left, it wasn't the case. The Democrats were always afraid of primary <laughs> fights. And with Jamal Bowman and, and others, you've shown a, a willingness to, uh, to take down Democratic establishment figures. And, yeah. and so tell us about that dynamic.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, we're done electing and protecting and supporting Democrats just because they have a D next to their name. Just because you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean that you're good on climate. It doesn't mean that you are a champion. Just because you vote the right way doesn't mean that you want to actually understand what is at stake, the threat that we are under, and the fact that we have delayed action for so long, for 40 years, that we have just half a decade to turn this around Or, like my generation and a lot of people are completely screwed. And so, I think, you know, we set out in large part to engage in primaries because we don't just need to fight against the GOP. We need a set of people and a party that we can fight for. And so many young people are fully disenchanted with the political process because they don't see people on either side of the aisle who represent their interests, who are ready to fight hard, take political risks perhaps to their career, to be on the right side of history. Um, And so for us, uh, we decided, you know, the only way that the Democratic Party is going to take this seriously is honestly if some of them uh, get kicked out for failing to to do so. And so, you know, we helped Jamal Bowman, who is an amazing, amazing guy from the Bronx, who was a middle school principal, is just like a huge champion of the Green New Deal. He, uh, we made upwards of 800,000 of his 1.3 million phone calls to voters in the midst of a pandemic. And like, literally, these are teenagers on Zoom making these calls. And we were able to topple a 31-year incumbent, you know, who had simply not made this a priority and hadn't made a number of things a priority, like, you know, being in his district when they were undergoing some of the worst rates of uh, COVID in the country. And so, you and know, he, he even yeah. said,
0: if it wasn't a primary, I wouldn't be here. Exactly. He either, yeah. <laughs>
2: like, I'm sorry, you don't deserve the office. You don't deserve the office if you can't actually help your people when when they're needed. And, and you know, there's a reason why it's called a public servant. This is public service. Um, and I think, you know, when people hold on to these positions for too long and sort of rest on their laurels and rest on their relationships, times are changing. And the crises that we are facing right now have reached such a fever pitch that it's not enough anymore just to kind of coast and make the right votes. We need people who are going to be fighters because we have a a lot of trouble coming our way.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Varshini Prakash, executive director and co-founder of Sunrise Movement. She's co-editor of a new book, Winning the Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can. One of the youths that uh, was in Nancy Pelosi's office that day, I've known her since she was a, a, a baby, um, and I, I saw her on 60 Minutes. I thought, uh-oh, do you know? Do your parents in Hong Kong know what you're doing? <laughs> um, I think they were proud. I later attended a Sunrise Chapter meeting at Yale with her, and I was impressed how respectful and inclusive the student activists were. How do you get young people all fired up to take power without getting them high on power? <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I think ultimately, we're very clear that we are losing badly right now. And we are well aware that our opponents have, frankly, unfathomable levels of uh, amounts of money, endless resources. Uh, They are coordinated. They are organized. And they have been running the same playbook for half a century uh, the delay, the deny, the deceive playbook. Um, and it is work, it has been working. Um, and so I think we're clear that we can't just be sort of like small groups of individuals, like being morally righteous, but not actually perhaps like growing our ranks. We have to be talking to new people. We have to be bringing in lots of folks who are worried about this crisis, but have never taken action before. Because if we're just preaching to the choir, We're never going to win. And so actually, I think, interestingly enough, to build power, you have to um, share power. To build power, you have to bring people in. You have to be inclusive. You have to make it a welcoming space. You have to give everybody a role. You have to make sure that you are teaching people who have never done this before how to run a meeting, how to have a one-on-one conversation with somebody else. Um, to bring them in, how to canvas, how to phone bank. You have to teach people how to do a direct action. There's how to tell a story. Like the number of things I had to learn from scratch when I was younger. I mean, you know, it's because people invested in my leadership. So I think, you know, if we are serious about getting millions and millions of people into this movement, we've got to get off our high horse. We can't you know, be using all this jargon and, and words that people don't know or creating sort of unrealistic expectations for the kind of person that joins a movement. We've got to make it as accessible and open and welcoming as possible because we need every person that's going to come through that door.
0: One of the things the Green New Deal challenges is sort of uh, markets and reshaping or certainly constraining markets. They've been quite unleashed since Milton Friedman in the 70s and said shareholders are Mm -hmm. primary. How has market fundamentalism shaped the way the United States views and responds to climate disruption?
2: When you have an economic system that has said, leave everything to the markets, deregulate Industry. Let industry do whatever it wants. You know, there's no need for government to enforce industry or, or um stop pollution or make some of these like big monumental investments to actually invest in the, the green energy sector. When we have created an economic system that is about profit for profit's sake without consideration of, you know, literally the future of the planet or at least humanity's role in it. I think this has created a sense that ultimately there was a a deep imbalance over the last 40 years that has been tailored very much to the markets and far less to the role of government in actually being able to implement the kinds of policies to solve the problem. And so now you're seeing a lot of people saying enough is enough, like the markets had a chance to change this, to address this problem for 40 years, and they utterly failed. And Honestly, it's a lie anyways, because the government actually props up the fossil fuel industry as we've seen through this pandemic or through fossil fuel subsidies and tax breaks. And I think when we look back in history at any time where there was an all hands effort to address some form of existential threat, whether it was World War II, whether it was the Great Depression, whatever it was, you saw the government taking a very active very critical role in uniting uh, American, both, you know, people, industry, academia, unions, movements, and bringing people together towards a common, to, to face that common threat. And, you know, I really think that we have that opportunity in the climate crisis as well, but to pass the kinds of like, honestly, dozens of pieces of legislation that we will need to do to to address this issue over the next decade, it's going to require our government. We can't just leave it to the markets to do that.
0: You know, last question is: the science is dark, the odds are long, the the weight of the future of the world is on young people's shoulders. How do you carry the weight of all of the intensity that you think about every day and not get consumed by
2: it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things. One is. I do let myself get consumed by it. And I actually think most of the time that it feels overwhelming and terrifying is actually us resisting the actual grief and pain that we feel. Um, And so sometimes what you gotta do is you just gotta stop and cry or light a candle or do whatever, say a prayer, do whatever you need to do to actually feel what you're trying to feel. Um, Because I find that like the pain oftentimes is like, more in the resistance to the actual feeling than, than anything else. Uh, The other thing I'd say is, is um, having to develop like more spiritual practice has really helped me. And I think as part of that, one of the greatest teachings is basically the balance between the fact that you don't really have any control over the world's destiny in a real way. It is not like solely my responsibility to fix the world. And at the same time, I have an immense amount of power to shape what I can touch, and that could potentially change the course of history. And both of those are true, they are held at once, but I think being clear about that reality and being able to let go a little bit of the, the pressure and the ego of that, I think is immensely helpful. You've
0: been listening to Climate One, We've been talking about the politics of climate with Varshni Prakash, executive director and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement and author of Winning the Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can. My other guest today was political strategist Steve Schmidt, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.